Welcome to the podcast series for the Journal of Neurophysiology. Today, we'll be discussing the article titled Hippocampal Beta-2 GABA-A Receptors Mediate LTP Suppression by Atomidate and Contribute to Long-Lasting Feedback but Not Feed Forward Inhibition of Pyramidal Neurons. Joining us today are Editor-in-Chief Professor Nino Ramirez and author Dr. Bob Pierce. So let's get started. Hi, Nino. Hi, Jamie, and hi, Bob. Many thanks for participating today on our podcast series. And uh, well, we'll discuss uh, neural mechanisms for anesthesia today, and specifically, you know, the, your, your atomidate. And uh, this drug is used for induction of general anesthesia and for the sedation of short procedures. But before we go into the detail for your study, perhaps let's start with some more general questions like, Atomidite is uh, only one ho- of a host of other general anesthetics, which includes those that are injected intravenously and the volatile anesthetics like isoflurane. So perhaps maybe we start our conversation with a short discussion of the most important classes of anesthetics and their use. And to be honest, what I find conceptually most interesting is that anesthetics are differentially used to achieve, for example, specific effects such as hypnosis, immobility, and amnesia. So if, we, if you can discuss that, that would be fantastic. Yeah, thank you. Thank you very much for the invitation to be on this podcast. This is exciting. And uh, as you note, the Tomidate is one. It's become a really uh, prototypical type of anesthetic to use for experimental purposes because it's thought to be quite specific for GABA receptors. And so it's the prototype of a number of other anesthetics that are really used more often. For example, propofol. Propofol is another anesthetic that's used to put patients to sleep, uh, and it's completely taken over uh, from thiopental, which was what used to be used to induce anesthesia. And so atomidate, we think of as a highly GABAergic anesthetic. There are other drugs that also work quite specifically on GABA receptors like benzodiazepines. But generally, benzodiazepines like Valium or Versed, Midazolam, uh, even though they work on GABA receptors, they're not given in high enough doses to produce complete loss of consciousness usually. Uh, They produce other effects like sedation or anxiolysis or amnesia. And we want to produce amnesia in the operating room. Uh, patients don't want to remember their operations. We don't want that to happen. Uh, sometimes it does, unfortunately. Uh, it's pretty rare, about two in a thousand, and it hasn't changed very much over quite a long time. So understanding how anesthetics produce anesthesia or the amnesia component of anesthesia is uh, important, we think. And other components of it, as you noted, can also be produced Some of the drugs do better at producing uh, certain components than others. The types of anesthetics that produce essentially all of the aspects of anesthetics, like isoflurane or sevoflurane, they can produce immobility, which we generally refer to as immobility uh, in the face of a noxious stimulus. It's what the surgeons really care about. They don't want their patients to be moving while they're trying to do an operation. And we used to think of immobility and unconsciousness and other aspects, pain 
management is all arising from a similar mechanism and we just needed to discover what it is. Now we know that that's not true. All these different aspects come from anesthetic effects in different parts of the brain, acting on different receptors, and immobility is primarily produced by anesthetic effects in the spinal cord. Uh, amnesia, we think, is probably produced by anesthetic effects in the hippocampus and maybe other parts of the brain too. And so it turns out that the GABAergic anesthetics are not particularly good at preventing movement in response to a painful stimulus. So we use those together with other anesthetics or even anesthetic adjuvants like muscle relaxants that directly paralyze the muscles and keep a patient from moving while we use these GABAergic anesthetics to keep them unconscious and amnestic. Wow, that is fascinating. And uh, yeah, so basically we can use actually the anesthetics also to understand how these specific functions work. So for example, in your study, we'll be able to get insights how memory actually works by understanding where in the brain this particular anesthetic works. So this is great. But I think before we go into the memory and learning paradigm, perhaps can you tell us also about the different GABA receptors? Because I think that's also relevant for understanding your study. And it's, it's a pentameric complex and there are different subunits and how do they work together and are there some specificities that play a role here? Yeah, that, that is an important aspect to understand. Uh, it's interesting in its own right, and it's important to understand because we used that to manipulate the different kinds of GABA receptors in specific kinds of cells to see which ones matter. And as you note, these are pentameric, meaning there are five subunits, and they surround a central ion pore and most of the uh, receptors in the brain are not ionotropic receptors. They're G protein coupled receptors that then couple to various signaling systems. But this is that class of ionotropic pentameric receptors that is like the nicotinic acetylcholine receptor is a prototypical receptor. But these bind GABA and they open in response to GABA and they allow chloride primarily, they allow other anions too, but chloride flows through and it causes the cells to not fire. And there are a lot of different subunits that are grouped into classes. There are six alpha and three beta and three gamma and some other uh, delta, epsilon, other minor subunits that are more restricted locations in the brain. And most receptors are composed of two alpha and two beta and one gamma. And these alphas can come from six different groups. And the ones we focused on are receptors that contain alpha-5, which is really highly restricted in the hippocampus and in uh, specific other kinds of cells. It's distributed much more limited. Uh, it confers specific kinds of properties. It makes receptors really sensitive to GABA. So low concentrations of GABA can open the receptor compared to other subunit combinations. And the alpha-5 subunits that we know are highly expressed in the hippocampus typically pair with beta-3 subunits. So there are two alpha-5 and we think two beta-3 and a gamma subunit in most of these receptors. So we call them alpha-5, beta-3, gamma-2 receptors. And those are the receptors that are uh, the most common in the hippocampus. We 
used the GABA beta 2 receptor as a target for these studies because some of our previous research indicated that beta 3 subunits, even though they're the most common, don't seem to matter when we try to manipulate them to prevent memory. And the way we manipulate them is uh, also important to understand. We manipulate them with a single amino acid mutation that makes them insensitive to automidate. So automidate is a particularly useful anesthetic to use for these experiments too, because it's known that it only modulates receptors that contain a beta-2 or a beta-3 subunit, not beta-1. And that's wow. experimentally useful because then we can consider the differences between beta-1, beta-2, and beta-3. And doing that, a single amino acid in the transmembrane region was found that dictates whether automidate can modulate the receptor or not. So by doing a single amino acid switch, we can turn the receptor sensitive or insensitive to automidate. And Interesting. that was, yeah, that was the trick that was used to make specific kinds of receptors insensitive. So we still think that they're expressed at the same places. They just become insensitive. Interesting. And that's probably why you also have to use the transgenic approach, which I don't know, probably couldn't do be, couldn't be done with a pharmacology. And now the, the GABA receptor is very sensitive to changes in expression. For example, during development, do you think that also anesthetics can change the expression pattern of these GABA receptors and, and affect uh, how you respond? These alpha-5 subunits can change in response to drugs that they've experienced. And that can lead to some longer lasting changes in memory that are post-operative cognitive dysfunction possibly that we want to avoid. But that's not what we have examined primarily here. We're thinking primarily about how these drugs prevent memories from being formed during anesthesia acutely. And it seems unlikely, although we don't really know, it seems unlikely that acute changes in expression are responsible for changes in memory during the episode. It's probably modulating the receptors that are already there. And so it's a sort of a different, but it's a very interesting question, how the anesthetic can change the expression patterns. Interesting. Now, uh, in your study, basically, you, you used a GABA receptor, and it has different roles involved in feed-forward and versus uh, feedback mechanism in the hippocampus CA1 region. And perhaps could you talk a little bit more about this and how your study provides us with general insights into the mechanism governing LTP in the CA1 region? Yeah, that's a big question. Uh, thank you. How can anesthetics or GABA receptor modulators govern the expression of LTP? Uh, a lot has been done over a lot of years to understand how LTP comes about. And 99% of the research has focused on what happens at the postsynaptic site. How does depolarization lead to persistent changes in expression of receptors, making, uh, making receptors stronger? Or at the presynaptic site, it's really the excitatory site. Are there changes in transmitter release, for example? And that's part of learning or do new excitatory synapses grow? So all of that is focused on what's happening at the postsynaptic site and how it changes. 
there's so little that we understand about how the brain is controlling how that happens through inner neurons. And in fact, do we even know that it's inner neurons that matter because dopamine surges might be providing the, the reason that synapses change or not. So just the idea that we can change whether LTP happens or whether memory happens by modulating GAB receptors is a pretty unexplored area. And I would say that thinking about what the drugs are that we use to modulate memory in clinical settings, uh, almost all of them change inhibition. Uh, benzodiazepines are good amnestic agents and they're very specific for inhibition. So just on the face of it, there's evidence that changes in inhibition can change memory. But exactly how you tie that to whether LTP is formed or not is tricky. And so it comes to whether or not certain kinds of inhibitory systems uh, are timed appropriately to prevent the depolarization, for example, that's necessary to unblock NMBA receptors. And there are specific kinds of receptors in the dendrites of pramble cells that have been discovered that are critically important for that to happen with bursts of excitatory uh, coming in. And those turn out to be alpha-5, beta-3 receptors in the dendrites of pramble cells that have nonlinear properties that allow them to open up and be very effective and be long lasting. They match the time course of the NMDA receptors. And so they can be very effective at preventing long-term potentiation. Fascinating. So you address it a little bit now. So the effect goes via the interneurons, but also the pyramidal neurons. Can you kind of discriminate the differential effects on this or is it difficult to dissect? We haven't developed a method for changing the GAP receptors on just pyramidal cells or on just the interneurons. And that would be very helpful. And it's something that we're thinking about and about to embark on. And it'll take a little bit more fancy uh, genetic engineering. Uh, it's relatively straightforward to knock out specific subunits uh, from specific kinds of cells. And that may be a good way to go, but it probably will be a better experiment to knock in this insensitive mutation into specific uh, kinds of cells. I see. And so that's what I think uh, is going to be a very useful strategy to understand what's happening. And in particular, the inner neurons, uh, and there are a lot of different kinds of inner neurons, figuring out which of those inner neurons matter uh, if beta-2 is acting through the inner neurons. It's still not impossible that beta-2 in pyramidal cells, though, has an important role. And whether it's in this specific drug modulating LTP in memory, or other things, our, our experiments focused a lot on the beta-2 or beta-3 expression in pyramidal cells, um, sort of as a first step to understand uh, how mm. anesthetics are targeting the dendritic inhibitory processes that can control LTP. So, so you think most of the effects are on the dendrites, or do you think some of the effects are also somatic, or is it difficult to know? I'd say it's difficult to know. When we think about how inhibition controls LTP, I think mostly about trying to suppress dendritic excitation. And, mm -hmm. uh, but the fact that pyramidal cells um, spike 
and that spiking can backpropagate and that backpropagating uh, timed action potential coming together with the input may also be an important factor. And so it's not impossible that beta-2 receptors on the pyramidal cell soma play an important role in controlling whether plasticity occurs. Do you think that uh, extrasynaptic tonic GABA release is also affected or is this like out of the question here? We did some experiments a few years ago to try to understand what the beta subunit contribution of tonic inhibition is. And tonic inhibition has received uh, a lot of attention because it is always there, unlike the inhibition that we see in uh, phasic fashion when transmitter is released. And if you calculate how much current can go through the tonic inhibitory receptors, it seems like it's a lot. But I have to say, I've always been skeptical that tonic inhibition plays that strong a role in a awake behaving neuron. Because if you think about how much conductance is there in tonic inhibition, it is a lot compared to the occasional inhibitory or excitatory currents that you see in a brain slice that's just sitting there. But if you look at a neuron in a circuit that's actually doing something, it doesn't just sit there with any resting potential. It's hugely active. And that modest conductance that comes from tonic inhibition may not be able to really control the, what the cell does very well. So we've been really interested in understanding, does tonic inhibition have a role or not? And we thought using beta-2 and beta-3 subunit mutations might tell us something because we know that alpha-5 pairs with something to produce tonic inhibition and most likely with beta-3. So we knocked this mutation into the beta-3 subunit, made it insensitive to automidate, and it made it so that automidate could not modulate tonic inhibition at all. And so we were able to remove the ability of automidate to modulate tonic inhibition. And when we did that, it did not change the ability of automidate to block memory, or it did not change the ability of automidate to block LTP. So that's a dissociation between the anesthetic effects on tonic inhibition versus LTP or memory. So from that, we concluded that tonic inhibition in pyramidal cells was not really controlling whether anesthetics are blocking memory. That is fascinating. I mean, this is really important for the general understanding of how LTP works, and that is a good experiment for that. So very cool. Now, you already talked about it, but your uh, experiments were done in slices. And uh, to what extent can we now go and think about the whole animal and in the behaving animal? Do you have some insights into this? Yeah, since we made genetically modified mice, it's pretty straightforward to then take them and not just do brain slice physiology, but do actual uh, experiments of learning and memory. And we have those experiments underway. We're nearing completion with a set of those experiments. And so we are going to be able to say whether drug modulation, whether automate modulation of beta-2 subunit containing receptors specifically is needed for automate to block memory. 
So very cool. So uh, I, I'm, I can't say yet, but um, it won't take too long for us to finish those experiments and to compare those with beta three so that we have a direct head to head comparison. Fantastic. And of course, you submitted to Journal of Neurophysiology and we can talk about it. <laughs> That's, <laughs> ideal, <kidding>. right. <laughs> That's ideal. Yeah. So so the next question is uh, the role of glia. You know, do you think glia plays a role here? Uh, I haven't spent much time looking at glia or any effort trying to understand it. We do know that glia play a active role in excitatory transmission as part of a, a tripartite synapse and some of the really interesting work that Phil Morgan and Marge Sedensky have done over the years have shown that the glial component is critical for anesthetics such as isoflurane or sevoflurane modulating excitatory transmission. And that very likely is a mechanism contributing to some components of anesthesia that happen through the excitatory synapses. I don't know of any evidence that inhibitory synapses work through similar tripartite mechanisms. Mm -hmm. uh, so glutamate is taken up and then the, the glutamate shuttle happening through the glia is a pretty important part of that. Uh, but GABA, as far as I know, is taken up uh, by the inhibitory cells themselves, and it doesn't have to be shuttled back through glia. But on the other hand, I don't know that that's really been investigated that carefully either. So wouldn't that be interesting if that happened? Yeah, it's fascinating. And, and you will be always get surprises when you address these questions. Now, you studied now the hippocampus. The drug will also act on the neocortex. Do you think there are similar mechanisms going on in other areas? others than, than um, the hippocampus? And do they also contribute to your anesthetic effect? Undoubtedly, inhibition in all over the brain is being affected by these. Uh, GABA receptors are everywhere, uh, not just in the neocortex and the hippocampus, but throughout. And maybe the uh, receptors that are being modulated in some of the subcortical regions are gonna be the ones that are most important for producing the sedative effects of anesthetics. And there's been a lot of really interesting research uh, into the, the brainstem mechanisms of arousal and how they are affected uh, by anesthetics and how that contributes to sedation. So probably, that will turn out for GABAergic anesthetics to be uh, important targets. For other aspects that involve the neocortex, um, anesthetics are certainly modulating uh, neocortex, but whether or not those contribute to memory, explicit memory formation, for example, can you remember something uh, about the event or implicit memory? whether that's developed. That's less clear. Uh, at low doses, anesthetics prevent uh, thinking from being straight. And so probably it's the anesthetic effects in the neocortex that are gonna have something to do with cognition and consciousness. And so those different aspects are gonna be modulated through 
neocortical or subcortical, um, and even spinal cord GABA receptors. Uh, beta-3 subunit-containing receptors are essential for producing immobility. We know that from some earlier studies. So yeah, these happen throughout the brain, but each of them probably contributes to some specific aspect of this anesthetic state. Mm-hmm. And then neural circuitry affected. Now, other drugs, and I think you mentioned it already, the, the isoflurane, for example, also affects memory. So you think these other anesthetics go to different parts of the GABA receptor and affect different aspects of this, let's say, circuitry that leads to LTP, or, or do you think they all go via this specific GABA subunits? That's a great question, and one that we have wondered about for a long time. Mm-hmm. The understanding how isoflurane uh, or the ether-like anesthetics, the volatile anesthetics, how they produce anesthesia is sort of the holy grail of understanding this. Uh, Using very specific drugs like GABAergic anesthetics, like Atomidate, uh, or using non-GABAergic anesthetics like ketamine, or more specific substances like CPP, those things can cause amnesia and they can cause some aspects of anesthesia. And those clearly are not happening through GABA receptors. Mm-hmm. And drugs like isoflurane do a little bit of uh, different things. They block excitatory transmission, but they also enhance inhibitory transmission and they open up potassium channels. And there's a debate in the uh, field about whether or not there's a small number of targets and each of them contributes a large fraction of the effect, or if there's a very, very large number of targets and all of them contribute just a little bit. I suspect that it's gonna be a, uh, not limited to one or two, but still a small number of targets that explains how isoflurane or halothane can produce their effect. And I guess that the GABA receptor is gonna end up being responsible for a third or half of how anesthetics produce this. And we uh, started using Atomidate sort of as a gold standard for the inhibitory effect and compared equally amnestic concentrations of isoflurane versus Atomidate and uh, and see how much it affects uh, inhibitory synaptic function and memory. And it does look like at equally amnestic uh, concentrations, the Tomidate accounts for about a, or GAB receptors account for about a third or a half of memory. We don't know about the other things though. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But, but still, the, the concept is that anesthetics work through different receptors, through different mechanisms. And, and ultimately, basically, it's a, it's a sum of all these different networks that are affected uh, differentially. Now with it. And some anesthetics affect mm-hmm. uh, all of them or a lot of different. Yeah. Uh-huh. And some anesthetics are more specific for one uh, receptor or another. That's right. Do, do you think that some anesthetics are better for adults versus, let's say, young kids? Because, you know, the GABA receptor expression changes during development or, or do you think that the GABA receptors affected are those that are not so much dif- differentially changed during development? I feel like that's way out of my league yeah. to answer that. But I would note that 
the anesthetics that we use to put children to sleep, or I don't do that anymore. I haven't done that for many, many years. Pediatric anesthesia is its own specialty. Uh, but they use the same drugs and the same drugs that put adults to sleep also put children to sleep. And they cause the same constellation of effects, uh, sevoflurane, mm -hmm. propofol, mm -hmm. or tomidate. So they generally are active in uh, infants, children, and adults producing about the same kinds of effects. So just from that surface uh, observation, uh, I would say that they may not be greatly different in different mm -hmm. Yeah, but I, I think I remember that people told me that yeah, some pediatricians said, you know, you can have long-term effects uh, after anesthesia to children. And, and, and they always wonder, you know, which drugs can cause long-term effects and which ones are not. And, and I think for that, this question might be a relevant one to see whether it affects certain expression uh, states that are changing or not. I don't know, but it's complex. Well, I know. Mm. That, that is a uh, really important um, problem that there are people in our specialty who are addressing it uh, through experiments. Smart Tots is one of the efforts that's been a collection of a lot of people trying to understand that. And I would say that gets back to the difference that we talked about a little earlier about the acute effects versus the lasting effects mm -hmm. of anesthetics. So the different anesthetics all being effective in children and adults is more about the acute effects, but whether they different anesthetics have lasting effects uh, or they differ in the kind of lasting effects that they have, that probably is true. And it's something that we need to figure out. Uh, uh, so far, the evidence is that a uh, single administration for brief periods of time doesn't lead to adverse effects in children. Mm -hmm. But it may be that repeated exposures can lead to some problems. Yeah, I mean, you have these kids uh, with congenital heart disease or something where you have to repeatedly do anesthetic effects on this ner growing nervous system. And, and I think then you have conditions that maybe are primed to this. So, so what about the old people, are there differences or, or you think also there's not such a big difference between the very old people like with other neurodegenerative diseases, for example, Parkinson patients, Alzheimer's patients, or is this again speculation? It is getting into an area that matters to a lot of people, but is not understood very well. But mm -hmm. there have been some very interesting results in that direction that are surprising. And one of the surprising results is that if you give propofol at pretty large doses to aged mice, then they actually will develop improvements in their cognitive function. Uh, and so there are some also um, studies in people about trying to understand that. Uh, and the evidence that I'm aware of that is the strongest is that, uh, again, these episodes uh, that are individual episodes 
don't seem to accelerate a long-term cognitive decline, that there is an ongoing cognitive decline uh, that's happening that doesn't seem to be impacted by the single administration. Uh, but that's large population studies. Yeah, but I mean, maybe the tools of, of transgenic mice could could allow you to, to get deeper into this. You know, you mentioned also these beneficial effects of propofol. Now, the same thing is true for ketamine, correct? At low concentration, ketamine is now used a lot for, for psychiatric conditions and has some cognitive enhancing functions, which yeah. could be a similar Isn't phenomenon. Yeah. Isn't that so exciting that there can be some treatments like that that are developed for uh, depression that has been such a problem? Uh, Treatment-resistant depression is now being found to be uh, improved by low-dose ketamine. Yeah. And the mechanisms for that are going to be, again, very separate from the mechanisms for what's mm -hmm. happening uh, with GABAergic anesthetics. But in the end, they may well converge because uh, it's thought that changes in synaptic plasticity could underlie some of those beneficial effects. And so understanding uh, how circuits control their plasticity may converge at that level. Fascinating. I mean, yeah, you're going at the core of... Uh of learning and memory. So you have these tracks for that. So of course it shouldn't be surprising that you get surprising effects. So it's, it's great. So Bob, what are the next steps from here? Where do you want to take the study? I think the next uh, direction that we'd like to understand is whether the critical receptors that these anesthetics are targeting are located on inner neurons or are they on the pyramidal cells? Or are they on both? And so figuring out how to selectively modulate receptors on the different cells or prevent their modulation to see what happens with learning and memory. Uh, and then to look at specific subsets of the inhibitory neurons uh, will be an interesting way to understand we have all of these different kinds of inner neurons what are they doing? Uh, how do they, we know that when we give anesthetics, it changes their oscillations, theta oscillations and gamma oscillations and the timing of those oscillations is gonna be critical for memory, but exactly which inner neurons are involved in producing which aspects of the oscillations, how they're coupled, whether anesthetics change that coupling is one of their mechanism. Uh, so those are the uh, directions that I think we can go, and now these very exciting tools that are being made available for neuroscientists to use uh, between the genetics, uh, optogenetics, uh, pharmacogenetics, things like that, are uh, going to make it possible to do experiments that we couldn't have even imagined would be possible uh, when I started in this field. <laughs> I'm so glad, Bob, that you mentioned oscillations because ultimately, you know, the LTP is functioning within the circuitry that is oscillating in different frequencies and you know like your you have your wake state you have your sleep state and 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 you know understanding how your anesthetic via your GABA subtype receptor will affect this ultimately is is really key for understanding learning and memory in general and and the same thing is also for understanding consciousness i guess uh, anesthesia will be the best tool to understand 
consciousness. And uh, where do you think is this happening? I think the thalamus is in, in is one area that people think the medial thalamus or what, what is your idea about this? The thalamocortical system is clearly the, uh, the, I don't know, seat of consciousness. And it does seem very likely to me that anesthetics targeting the thalamus or the cortex or both are going to be um, important for understanding how they produce unconsciousness. But I think that the, in, that the subcortical systems that support their ability to function together are going to also end up being very important uh, targets. And whether we can develop anesthetics that target one or the other in a clinical setting, they may produce very different kinds of characteristics that could be beneficial or not, uh, would be an interesting direction to go. First, of course, we need to do the science and understand in a, in a experimental setting, can we target just uh, one set of receptors or another? And I think that these uh, tools like the atomidate insensitive beta subunits uh, being put into those specific parts of the brain uh, in order to see if we can change how they alter consciousness is another really exciting direction. Absolutely. I think anesthesia is really the best tool to un ultimately understand consciousness and where it acts. And, and I mean, we have these tools now, you know, all these transgenic tools that can be targeted to very specific neurons. I think it, it will be very, very exciting as, as the next step. So uh, my question, my last question kind of is, what are the, the major take-home messages that you would like to convey for the general listener? The idea that anesthetics target specific kinds of subunits in specific locations to impair memory is I think the take-home message that uh, beta-2 subunits specifically are critical targets for blocking long-term potentiation in slices. And our next step will be to see whether that applies to memory as well. Bob, thank you so much. I, I learned so much and it's really inspiring how much you learn about uh, you know, the mechanisms of the brain using anesthesia and, uh, and that it's not just useful to knock out someone and, and uh, knock out the, the, the memory. And there are so many open questions. So it's a fascinating field. And, and Bob, I, I really am very grateful for your contribution to our journal. And, uh, and I hope you, you continue publishing for us. And, thank you, uh, no, I'm thank really, you so much. Yeah, I really appreciate the opportunity to join you for this. This has been very enjoyable. Yes, absolutely. Next time we do it in Madison, okay. sitting outside in the beer gardens. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, Bob. Thank you for listening. This podcast was brought to you by the Journal of Neurophysiology and produced by me, Jamie Jones. If you would like to hear our latest episodes, please visit the Journal of Neurophysiology's homepage.